Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you are, go give it a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever player you're listening in on. The ratings really help, and we're going to continue to level up the guests. And I'm very excited for today's guest. His name is Jeff Campbell, and he is the Senior Vice President at Scale Bank. I've known Jeff for over 10 years. He was actually one of the banks that I interviewed while we were trying to refinance our business back before we sold it. And the reason I'm excited to have him on the show is he's got unique insights into the economic shifts and what's going on into the business banking landscape and the industry. And why it's so fascinating is because Jeff's bank, they have been in business primarily focused on financing working capital. And in order to do that, a bank needs to completely understand how a company operates and generates cash flow to better understand the risk of that future cash flow, which is why Jeff is the right person to have on where we dive into what's going on in the banking industry, all the commercial real estate loans, the baby boomer wealth tsunami. We talk about private equity. We talk about the exposure that the banking industry has from interest rate risk and how that relates down to businesses and how businesses might be impacted for the future funding of their company and why it's so important to understand how the banking industry works and thinks about risk. So that way you can better understand how to interview the right banker and go find yourself the right funding. And the first hour we go from the macro space all the way down to banking industry and how they operate to then businesses and how a business should structure their finances. In the last half hour of the conversation, we do a Q and A with some of the listeners questions that were submitted in about what the questions they would have for a commercial banker. And Jeff was more than happy to Accommodate. I know you're going to absolutely love this episode. If you have any interest in banking, the economic shifts of what's going on, and how to continue to fund and scale your company. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeff. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Jeff, how are you, man? Great, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, I'm so excited to have this conversation. Um, I've known you now, what, 11 years? Is I actually was thinking about that because your, your kids were, what, I think, four and seven or something like that when I met you. Yeah, that sounds about right. I, it, well, I think I got to meet your father, but a little before that, even I was looking back at some of the records. Um, um, I think it was like oh eight oh nine or thereabouts. Oh no, uh, shit! That's when you finally—that was before me then. Well, then wow. and then you got yeah. in the mix. Uh, there, at you know, so there was a couple different uh, phases there, you know, and uh, you know, I don't know if we want to. Yeah, we, we can allude to what we're talking about there, but um, when, when we really needed some help. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think I'll, I'll just say like why I'm excited to have you on the show is because I interviewed 17 bankers, man. And I found out the difference between bankers. And that was probably 2011, 2012. <laughs> and I was like, some people are salespeople, some people are underwriters, some people are partners. And, you know, and then I was like, 
that you had this unique blend of you understood money, you understood business, you understood us, and you actually cared out of the 17. And I think at that point, you didn't have like a preferred SBA program or something like that. So we were just not a fit or something like that. But you really wanted to help even though you didn't have the capacity. Um, Yeah, I don't know if I'd be here if you would have had that program because you might have probably got it figured out and I'd be still still selling copiers. (laughs) Maybe. You know, hey, it's funny how life works out that way. I appreciate the kind word. I mean, so that's, um, we're kind of getting right to the, the, the brass tacks of it, but really that's kind of how, um, and we can talk more about the bank and the history yeah, and, and everything else. But I mean, oh. the, the, what you described right there is kind of how the philosophy of the management of the bank and myself is, you know, I've been there 22 plus years it's a long game. You do good work. You look out for, and this sounds cliched and people, you know, you could be rolling your eyes as people, as, as people hear this, but it's true and do what's right for the client or the prospect in this case, and try to get to a yes or a solution or some sort of provide something, you know, and I would go mm-hmm. on calls with, um, you know, in your case, it would be, hey, I want to try to find a solution. It may not even be to anything to my or the bank. You were helping us with like even factoring offerings. That well, it wouldn't even been point. to our direct benefit mm-hmm. necessarily, but this stuff adds up over time. You know, in terms of my selfish interest, it would be do good work and try to help people. And things come around and it may be yeah. years, you know, thereafter, but that's really kind of the philosophy and that's how it's always been here, you know, and uh, that's, um, you know, one of the really, the, the really, the, the nice things. Hey, I'd go on telemark. We have a guy that lines up calls for some of the lenders for like telemarketing appointments. And I would go out there and understandably, sometimes I'm knowing I'm getting into a, this would be a goose chase and there's really not going to be a lot of upside here other than, <laughs> you know, hey, spending time driving up there, meeting with someone, but go in with the philosophy. There's little downside to meet with a business owner. Mm-hmm. Whether that, you know, I think just to learn more about them. And I would always have the goal. I want to have one leave behind with this That's guy awesome. or this gal. And if it, if it's something I can't help them with, I want to leave them with a name or an idea or an introduction cool. or a referral or something, you know, mm-hmm. and they may take it for granted and never hear from them again, or it may change everything, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was, it was almost going in with not with the blinders of how can I, what is the financial gain that this is going to be selfishly? That isn't the goal. It is how can I help these people um, or this owner or this company or this group of owners uh, or this family. And uh, what's that? It's like, and it all works uh, out big time in, in, in the long run, kind of the long game. That's always been the philosophy, which is, which is really nice. When I got to experience it, man, it's like, um, it's the whole, the giving the giver's mindset, which I know you say is cliche, but like, I mean, I think, I think more now than ever, business owners are looking for those service providers that actually just show up and are human. And let's talk about how, how like how you got into banking specifically and then why scale bank, which used to be called Fidelity. And you can kind yep. of give us the background yep. container of that, Jeff, because like it's pretty rare to have someone stick stick at one bank for over two decades at this point. <laughs> and you're not and you're not old man. So like you're you're actually a young guy. So you've been in the point where like someone could go career hopping. You yeah. didn't do that. And so I think there's interesting data points that yeah. uh, we should pull on here. Well, I think uh, 
I feel like an old man. You're a nice guy. I haven't been, you know, <laughs> I, I, I saw your LinkedIn about your workout habits, you know, and I, that was a motivating post. Uh, how many? 5,000 some odd. Yeah, thinking, I, I don't okay, normally I gotta, do that. I've got I work like... to do. So anyone watching this realizes real quick who's been who's been in the gym and who. But anyway, um, uh, I think uh, I didn't know what I was getting into uh, when I was looking for the start of career. You know, I mean, it was my first job out of college when I started with the bank and uh, didn't really have I had met with other banks. Refinance major. It was like a business and econ uh, kind of made. So that okay. was that was that was really the 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 finance and business major at at uh, at the college I went to, and uh, had been looking around. Met with, actually interviewed in the office from which I'm sitting now with the now president and CEO Todd Williams, who's really been kind of the driving force of the organization. You know Todd. He's been here 30 plus years. Wow, cool. And really hit it off with them, and that was you know, and it kind of started from there. So it was really a lucked out you know i mean i look back i just i use this line i just wanted to eat i needed a job um <laughs> but really hit it off they were looking for credit analyst was the position commercial credit analyst that's how the career path has started with a lot of the of the lenders here at the bank and uh you know really hit it off with with todd and then you know chuck miller was was uh involved at the bank then jim morton the previous president before chuck and todd all of whom were at the bank 35 plus years during wow. their careers <clears throat> and it was more hey this there's a personality fit things started clicking and um you know i learned more about business and accounting the first week you know, I mean, I would say that, but it's true. I mean, holy yeah. smoke. So uh, some really great mentors uh, that I had learned a ton from over the years and don't need to name them. They know who they are, whether it's business development or, or credit or uh, relationship management. And that's really been uh, the, the, that's been critical. So it just kind of clicked. And there was a way about doing business, I think, that's what stuck. So people ask how long, you know, you've stayed at this bank that long, you know, it's back to my original comments. There's just a way of doing business that I think has always resonated. And a lot of the lenders and the people at the bank here, uh, as, as we kind of take a step back, a lot of them are small town background. This is just one anecdote, but I think it mm -hmm. does make sense. We kind of got a small town background amongst the employee base. And I think that kind of rolls into how we take care of our clients and how we do business. Yeah. Your it's word means when you something. Walk your office. There's, a, there's a hard work ethic that's, assumed you know again your word means something uh and uh you're not really out the the ethical dilemma kind of thing that doesn't ever really become an issue it's we want to do what's best for the client not about the short-term gain or financial benefit of the bank or my it, that isn't how we operate so that's really been the the main uh that's been the intangible i think that's mm -hmm. been the difference the other great things that i didn't know going in that the bank was so well run, well managed, diversified model, good performer. All of that, of course, helps to mm -hmm. keep people happy and to, and to preserve the continuity of the employees and the therefore the continuity of the delivery of our product to our clients because the bank's been such a good performer. So that right, you know, that kind of rate that yeah, lifts all, keeps it all boats. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, and it's it's a palpable feeling, honestly, when you walk in your office too, of that kind of energy of the, I mean, it's just the human touch with the practical business model yeah. at the same yeah. time. And so like, let's talk about like, I, I mean, uh, maybe I'll give you a little container of like, 
I mean, I've been in for the all the problems that you saw 15 years ago is why I care about money because <laughs> I didn't have any and we just needed to make payroll. And so now yeah. like, I've had this, you know, decade plus uh, infatuation with how money works, where does it come from? And, you know, why do these bankers, you know, back, I remember being uh, a kid, Jeff, going like, so we just drive by this bank and they just grant people money or not. <laughs> but like what I've noticed over the last even 15 years or 15 plus years is out of the 17 banks that I interviewed, you're the only small town bank still around. Every, the, yeah. the consolidation that's been going on, what's happened since 08 when they hit the the Fed hit the printing uh, press, and how the business models have changed, yet you guys are still there tried and true. So let maybe just, you know, without having to give us, um, going into too many different rabbit holes, but like how the business of the or the banking business model, the middle markets has changed over the years from like business development to underwriting. To just kind of give us like, I mean, you've yeah. been doing this for 20 years. Like what's been the evolution that you've seen and where we're at right now? Yeah. I mean, it does feel like if you look back at it, things have changed. There is still, it's changed, but it hasn't, you know, I mean, the basics and those elements are still as important as ever, but I think in the local market, I would agree. I think we do pride ourselves on being one of the the few remaining Minnesota-owned, Minnesota-based business banks in town. There are mm -hmm. certainly fewer. The We were always a bit of a unique player in the market, even back uh, in the early 2000s with no branch network. Everything's in one spot, which was by design to get decisions made and move quickly, not... Mm -hmm run it up the ladder to a different, you know, send it to maybe that doesn't know anybody that or to send it with, to yeah. underwriting in green Bay and get an answer to, you know, it was walk down the hall. Here's what I'm thinking. Someone needs the following Hey, We got to get on this issue right away and move quickly. So we were always mm -hmm. unique in as much as very flat, very tight knit commercial focused. Um, we're in an office park, same office park we've been since 1970 and it's <laughs> functional office space. Okay. It isn't the, but it, but it works. People are in the office and it's working and it's not this hologram. It isn't the, you know, I don't, we're not, we're not keeping these people around because of our nicest, uh, you know, amenities necessarily, but it's a, it's, it's a nice fun place to work with good people and it's definitely serves the job. Uh, but it, um, it had been move quickly in a dynamic environment. Hey, we can, we got to get things done. So having a branch network. So the value in the bank here was always, Hey, the people are really the value. There isn't like this huge branch again, you know, a network mm -hmm. of, and we had a niche where the bank was always focused on first and foremost was working capital lending, which was a little bit more high touch, a little bit more monitoring required than most every other bank, particularly during that early period of time, which was mainly focused on commercial real estate and or certain types of SBA lending. And some of whom had, you know, rocket ride growth where ours had been more slow, moderate, steady growth focused on working capital and then building around that with other stuff. Wow. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. That was always unique and a differentiator in the market. I think I'll, I want to, I want to tie that. That is so fascinating, Jeff. And like, you never, I've, I've never heard you clearly say it like that, but it makes a ton of sense now because for the listeners, like, I mean, I bet you, Jeff working capital, I say those words and like, <laughs> like yeah. all the business workshops or all the CEO presentations or whatever people is like eyes glaze over. I mean, they, everybody knows what it is. You can't pay payroll with your receivables, right? Unless you're doing some sort of uh factoring. But my point is, is like working capital 
is you have to understand the business operations to understand how cash comes in and out of the company. You have to actually understand the business versus when you say like everybody has had a rocket ship growth. Hey, guess what? Rates went down, asset values went up. We have fictitious margins or equity now. Here's more money. <laughs> Capital is cheap. Equity goes up. Here's more money. And so like there, there's like, and I watched those banks too, or like the peripheration or the growth, whatever the however you say the word is, like install all these salespeople that don't understand money. I mean, I actually had a commercial banker, Jeff, go to me, and they the crazy thing is they said this shit out loud. Is this banker said, I ne I never knew you could value a company based on its cash flow. And he was a <laughs> he was a banker that had been in this for thirty years. Well, I and think I you see a lot what? of there was a lot of transactional stuff going on that was leading to some of the the growth in in some of these. So we we really were never never really thought of ourselves as the transactional lender. It was picking our spots with relationships and not a high volume kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the reason why there has been some additional hey, there's been a lot of banks from out of town the dakotas elsewhere that have come in that have entered the market through acquisition and uh given our unique structure we just probably were never a target nor we were we i don't think the owners were ever open to that and then the other thing that really we're a complicated little bank is kind of how i describe you know or if we're yeah. a 550 600 million in assets it it does vary and we've been higher we've been lower based on a few different silos within our portfolio but there's for a bank of our size it's unusual to have not just the core commercial banking stuff like i do really the small mm -hmm. business closely held privately held companies call it a million 100 million and under in revenue really hyper focused on that um a lot of that drives the uh, liquidity and steady core deposits that we've been able to accumulate and work very hard to preserve in the last <laughs> couple of years. And then on top of that, there's some other diversification in the model that's really makes it unique. There's a factoring company that's part of the bank, which is again, very unusual for a bank of our size to, to, to have a factoring division. A lot of that is tied into the transportation, oil and gas and staffing industry. So factoring of uh, invoice-based receivable lending, uh, that is more transactional and more of a nationwide model where the, the business banking is generally in the in, mainly in town, but if you can drive there and back in, in a day is kind of how I describe it. And then there's another big part of the bank. Uh, there, there's an equipment and leasing division that we've added in recent years. It's been a, another growth spot. There's another big part of the bank that does a mortgage warehouse lending, which is a real niche. Uh, and again, extremely unusual for a bank of our size to have a presence in that when it would really would be funding mortgages, uh, private mortgage bankers again more of a nationwide model funding those mortgages before they get sold off in the secondary market so think of it as working capital to mortgage companies yeah, um, yeah. and that's a lot of volume during the low low rate environment late 2020 early 21 the bank's balance sheet was extremely swelled uh due to the volume in that it's come down as rates you know mm -hmm. quite quickly rates went up that volume went down all of this is to your point. It never really made sense as an acquisition target. Didn't feel like because we were such a we're kind of an odd duck in the market, and well, uh, we really worked hard to keep our people around. And for for just what you described, meeting with you or prior to that, your father, 13, 14 years ago, we've got clients that have been here 25, 30 plus years. They know who calls the shots. They know where the decision maker, who the decision makers are, what the process is. 
and they have access to a decision maker. That's the difference. So it sounds easy, hard to do, hard to deliver, to execute on that's really been the difference. And then you mentioned the, just real quick, the, uh, so that was Fidelity Bank and its evolution started in 1970, was originally called Southwest Fidelity Bank of Edina, and then it became Fidelity Bank. Southwest is it because like at Southwest it's it is the fidelity. Did you, how many? There fidelities? were other fidelity <laughs> banks in town way back when, and then there was others that got bought up. And Not sold. your location. We so no, right? we were the last one standing. Then it became fidelity, a privately owned. In 05, we were acquired by really a family office, is how I would describe it. That's hey, we're an investment in a portfolio, and there's independent governance, and there's firewalls, and it's really really been a good a really good ownership group. For, for what it's worth, too, it's the Opus family, right? And It's they, the Round Horse family that's tied to the main – most people would associate with Opus construction, so it's it's some family reason, trusts tied to that family. The reason I bring it up because Paul yep. Moffat's been on the show. Correct. Um, Paul and would be with the, that group. He, Paul, Paul manages the family uh, private equity family like when we were talking about his sliver of the family. Encore one. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And yep. so, Jeff, um, before I, I want to uh, interrupt you before you keep going because I think that this is – a good uh, foundation for how we can compare what's going on and the some of the challenges in the middle market banking problems that we're going to get into, why you're kind of insulated from what I've gathered from that because of these different diversified revenue streams and the complexity behind your business model. If you, if, if you can, because then I want to get into this, maybe you can finish your thought about yep. scale bank yep. and why you renamed it. But Going back to then that cash flow, and I think about the cash flow as the nucleus, the machine that has to keep going. And so when I do my presentations, I go, you want to go from point A to point B, and you've got a car, and your company's the car, and you cannot run out of cash. And the, and that and I think about working capital as the gas. And in, in this case, we don't want to accumulate it because we want to accumulate more than working capital. But it's the working capital is that that engine that or the gas for the engine. But you have to understand the car, the destination, where you're going, who's driving it, instead of just what is it worth on paper and then, you know, what will it be? So, like, it's not just an interest rate equity game. You have to right. understand the inner workings. But you mentioned something of why you started off as working capital and then diversify it out into equipment leasing and deposits. And what if I think why those things are important for you, why, why did you diversify off into those things? And then... Why is that important for your income stream and how that's different to these other banks that have high risks right now? Does that yeah, I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a diversification. That's the element as important as anything. So if there's, I think the, the, the mortgage warehouse thing was something that was started with a local mortgage uh, broker in town 25 plus years ago. And that thing has really morphed over time as we've learned a lot about that industry. And that's very complex. And there's a group of folks here at the bank that are really dedicated to that particular area. And it's uh, it's changed. And we went through, you know, the financial crisis during that time when, you know, we, we've ridden some waves and it's been up and down. Um, but, but doing mortgage credit facilities, like you're talking about working capital for mortgage brokers is different than you, which other small banks yeah. might have 30, 40 percent of their balance sheet actual mortgages, which is different. Right. No, for sure. So that's short-term lending and it, and it, it, and it moves. I mean, it's here for days is really almost how quickly that that's the velocity okay. of those, those types of, of fundings. But um, yeah, I think it would be the market maybe drove some reason to divert, you know, we had always done equipment lending and term lending or 
owner occupied real estate, but I think as the market evolved and as we had more sophisticated clients and other opportunities, we did, you know, we kind of grew and morphed with our client base and our centers of influence. So a little bit more, you know, we do some investment real estate, mm-hmm. seemingly a lot less if you look at the portfolio compared to a lot of the the peer groups in town, uh, owner occupied real estate for, you know, manufacturing facility or an office warehouse or something like that. Um, but it was really always back to the bread and butter of the working capital and the high touch. So that requires, like you said, you got to watch it more closely. There's mm-hmm. more monitoring involved and it's more work. And uh, we've been, we've been set up less to competition do that. doing that too. Yeah, I mean, but we've got some technology that helps uh, streamline things with the reporting and our ability to, um, and I, I think we've just been trained to have the uh, understanding, like you said, um, if you're lending on short-term assets, um, to have the, hopefully that collateral is going to change every 30, 60 plus days, um, <laughs> and have the ability to understand what, you know, what's really the type of receivables uh, what risks can be involved with certain elements within a receivable base, uh, likewise with inventory, and then really the balance sheet, you know, construct as a whole and how it all plays out. Because, you know, the I think you can get in a different mindset like you're discussing, well, hey, I have my operational cash flow. I have an mm-hmm. income that we're making to service my obligations. But there's also the working capital cash flow of the ins and outs on a short term mm-hmm. basis to fund the business and to meet the needs and have things appropriately structured to to provide that sufficient working capital to mm-hmm. to live. So that's been a bit of the difference where we had the expertise. We would partner up with asset based lenders and other maybe non-traditional lenders historically to do things that maybe were on that we would have additional monitoring in place where we could partner up with others to do deals mm-hmm. and get in a little bit earlier. And then once things came around, we may be able to help them on a direct basis. So that was really the difference where we were just trying to, you know, Hey, kind of stay laser focused on one, one particular component and then grow with it and grow with our clients and then uh, diversify as we needed to make sure we're hitting the needs of the, of the market. So, you know, I don't know, was all of that a grand scheme and design, you know, some of it probably was, we were fortunate that some of these things worked out. If you think about it, if the under normal circumstances, if the economy happens to be slowing, we're in a different environment right now, we'll talk about, but if, <laughs> if the economy happens to be slowing and the Fed would begin to cut rates in order to spur on growth and to stabilize the economic situation, uh, therefore rates are lower. In turn, there should be more potentially residential mortgage activity as a counter because the rates are lower. Now, yep. and then vice versa, if uh, the economy's things are moving more quickly, rates may be higher, the commercial side may be more active where the mortgage stuff may be lower. So there is that counterbalance mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of the the hedge of uh, hedge of our risk in certain economic cycles. That's kind of part of the logic. Um, it doesn't always work out perfectly well, and that way. Your balance, and the bank's balance sheet must turn over pretty fast yeah. too. It's a little bit more ver- of a unique balance sheet. Versus yeah. having such high interest rate risk exposure, which we can get into in a little bit. Um, but I, what I'm just kind of hearing it, I mean, you guys just have to understand how businesses operate. And then they're, and you have this, you have built a sustainable, predictable, transferable cash flow for the bank based on the health of businesses and the underwriting that you're doing of these companies. 
and the different and the different uh, diversified risk fit. Kind of maybe this ties into the scale bank re uh, rebranding, and we can get into then like how this risk is in the other banks. But I think it's important to understand. We talked about the Round Horse family, the Opus family, the essentially really wealthy individuals the family office that has this, like where the money comes from, from a bank. Cause I think again, what, we, what we're doing by talking about your bank, we're providing relativity for people to understand. Cause I think a lot of times, Jeff, people don't know to ask this stuff. And like, Oh, the banker said, yes, I get money or no, I get money. And they kind of sure. just leave it at that versus like, no, no, no. Like this money comes from somewhere for the bank because the bank, their inventory is capital and where they get their money matters and the intent behind that ownership's group matters. So where you get your money and then maybe where do other banks get their money and then we can kind of talk about like scale but I don't know how you want to tie scale bank the rebranding in there maybe just start there it's up to you. Yeah, well on um, you know so the rebrand was really a they were looking to freshen up the brand. We had this 1970s logo <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, fair enough, you know, some of these things come back in time, right? You were waiting for that logo was never going to come back in time or never come back in style. So they were looking to refresh the brand. It ultimately became a decision. If they're going to invest money, we're going to invest money into a, a brand. Why invest in a brand and a name that we could never own because of mainly because of fidelity investments. Right. And we would get phone calls and people coming in all the time and service providers and our, you know, other, they would be confusion. There's a Fidelity Investments location just a few blocks away on France Avenue. It would be constantly an issue. And our tellers and our receptionists and our people would take phone calls all the time. They they had it down. Wrong number. Here's the correct one. We don't do IRAs here and vice versa. We'd have clients that would, or prospects that would mistakenly mm -hmm. go to. So that was always, that was always an issue. Uh, there was also... 50 i 50 ish fidelity banks in the country like fidelity oh or first fidelity or first fidelity of oklahoma or the you know so it's that like, was it's like oak and wealth management like ooh, so creative yeah so <laughs> so that was another thing that that so this would be coming full circle to your question that wasn't necessarily the reason for the rebrand which occurred last uh, in, in September of 23, Scale Bank is in scaling, you know, up, a, you know, to the next level. And it's been an exciting change. Nothing changed with the management or the ownership of the bank. It was just a rebrand. But looking back at it, think of roughly a year ago, March of 23, there were banks. That was when the banking turmoil began. And let's mm -hmm. talk about how the, you know, the mm -hmm. deposits and how that all plays yep. into this. Well, one of the banks, there used to be a there used to be a bank in town here that shared totally unrelated that shared the name of a bank that went that failed in March of 23. That bank had since changed names and had been acquired. But if you think about it, for those that weren't paying any attention and saw the headlines of bank oh, shit. I'm trying to deposit flights names yeah. here for yeah, the yeah. anonymity, but if a bank XYZ went under, wait a second, that's where I bank, even though it was a different bank, you know, there could be confused, you know, why have that risk and that right, issue? Right. Wow. Uh, so yeah. that was maybe by looking back at it, that would be Locked. another reason yeah. to have your own name carved out and, and presence in the market. Better, so, better define that out with someone else's case study. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, unique name, not everyone, you know, there was a lot of work and, and research into the name. Uh, I think it'll grow on you if you don't, you know, some folks were hesitant, no one really likes change, but it's kind of get a more of a modern look and an exciting change. And it was, a, it was a great exercise to talk to the clients and really get out and, and, and yeah, promote yeah. The, the new ideas. So, um, you know, we've been 
so to back to the whole deposit thing, you know, the 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 model of the bank has been really focused on that small business, which we defined as small business, a million and under in revenue or a hundred million and under in revenue, mainly in town. But that type of business, as we've added new business for decades, has led to um, a diversified client base with not huge, block, not major concentrations in a particular industry or type of lending or type of, or, or even deposit concentration within certain industries either. It's been a diversified commercial deposit base for clients that need to have operating checking accounts and mm -hmm. additional liquidity in the form of savings and money market accounts or CDs, deposits with the owners or the principals of the companies as well that we could grow. So as a result, there's been this core stable level of liquidity that we've been able to preserve and it's been, it swelled during during COVID like every bank did. Um, but we kind of had that core level of deposits that we were able to preserve and it's been, knock on wood, it's been relatively sticky that we've been able to to preserve a lot of that because well, hey you got to keep a checking account you got to run your company if you're a 20 million dollar working capital you need the working capital yeah and, and like right. what i what, let's talk about why that's important for the listeners jeff because like i find this so fascinating and i find it also fascinating how few people get into the weeds of this is like so banks need deposits so correct me and interject if i'm off track on this but like banks need deposits so they need deposits so they can lend out money. They, that's their inventory of capital. And they say, okay, well, I can lend out now nine times my deposits or whatever that is. And so if you have a diversified – so hypothetically, you have a million dollars in cash and you can lend out nine million. If that million dollars goes away, you can't have that those loans out there, right? So like it, – or there's there's some there's the the equity of the bank changes or I, I, and again I don't know. Well, it would be the liquidity way. position of the bank, you know. So we've also stable commercial deposit base, mainly commercial. You know, we've we've been very fortunate and have worked really hard to preserve that. The owners have also, I think, left in a fair amount of capital for uh, to for the bank to manage some of the volatility in our balance sheet with these mm -hmm. other industries. And then also if there's an uh, opportunity that we wanted to take advantage of. So they've, they've main, they've, they've preserved a lot of capital in the bank too, which has of course helped in which the form of really excess is, capital. Well, but you're, to your point that no one, there was kind of the deposit thing was kind of taken for granted for a long time or really wasn't a focus among because money was so easy or you could borrow it so cheap. Even a banks could borrow it so cheaply as well. So mm -hmm. if they didn't have the deposit base, but had all of a sudden this huge considerable growth in, let's say it was commercial real estate, there were other ways to fund that through brokered deposits or other borrowing mechanisms if they didn't have the deposit base to do that. And the model was working fine when things events, yeah. were when when the, when the rates were low and the money was easy and there were all this liquidity in the system, it worked just fine until a disruption would prove that maybe that model was a little too dicey and there was a lot more risk to having it structured that way than than you know people well, realize. And, and you know, which I I want to dive a little bit further into because I think it just helps give relativity to your bank compared to what's going on out there. And people should be asking their banks these questions. Yeah. Cause like, they, like it all runs downhill. Trust me. They should <laughs> always just, know who they're working with. And if particularly, you know, if, if it's not one of the big national banks, they, they need to know what's going on. Not with, they want to know who the management and the decision makers, but really 
hey, those are good questions and it's public information. Hey, what's your bank up to? How's it performing? What what type of loans do you do? What What's going on in your portfolio? These are things that people can, can easily uh, look into. So, well, and Jeff, like what I want to do is like just kind of continue to, uh, I want to go back a little and just for the listeners that are not fully in this every day about like how financial engineering works. I mean, like, because what happens is people that listen in, they're like, I need enough cash in my checking account to pay my payroll and to buy stuff. <laughs> and like, yeah. what happens is, is like when you we'll go back to like, if, if a bank has a million dollars in deposits and it's diversified from a lot of people, you have the ability to then give loans out and not have risk of that core that you're loaning against. But if like, what was uh, the, one of the banks that went under, they had like $300 million from one of the tech companies and it just disappeared. And it's like, that's a problem right. because now all of a sudden everything. So there's the deposits and the yep. ratio of how the deposits to loans and the fact that your bank has a family office where they don't need all the money. And so like, they've got other things going on and say, Hey, we're going to park more cash in here to preserve, to help you guys be safe where everybody else is going we're have 0.1% room for error just like yeah. it's, it's the same thing like if someone were to take a bet out in on occupancy and say hey we're going to like the commercial real estate it's going to be 97% occupied forever it's like that's you ran all your models on that that that's in, well duh and so i think that's kind of a good analogy to say commercial real estate occupancy like little room for error compared to like what with deposits and how much cash you keep in there and where they come from. But then there's the whole other layer that you just mentioned of like, even if they had that little room for error, then they can go do other financial engineering to do short-term borrowing to then still make those loans out on someone else. That's got a 95% occupancy model. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I think again, until there was a disruption. So the disruption, when there was the bank turmoil last again, I think mainly in March of 23, that weekend, I started getting emails from people, clients, I, and I it know. was, you know, and I'm like, I've gone through the, you know, I've, uh, I remember the PPP, this isn't going to be another one of those again, where people were wondering, hey, what's going on here? Am I safe? And uh, they were, they were concerned, or this was a wake up call. Now, like you're saying, you should know, you should have an understanding of what's going on with your bank and the financial profile of the bank. I mean, those are fair questions to ask. And I think banks, any bank should be prepared to answer those questions. They didn't really come up for 10 plus years because no one really cared or meant or, or really, you know, since we've got short memories and no one really thought about it since uh, the financial crisis, call it 15 years. So these questions, people started emailing me over the weekend. Hey, what's going on? We had to be, so we had the ability to say, Hey, here's what, what we're doing. Here's what we have in our portfolio. Here's the data. Please feel free to dig in. You'd be amazed. There are both ends of the spectrum where some have no idea or interest at all as to what's going on at one's particular bank. And the others that were so that did their homework yeah, and were point. intimately aware of what was going on and asking really good questions. So it was, uh, it was really interesting to hear some of the questions from the clients well, and that, we were able to me... talk through these issues and reposition things and make sure that we were um, yeah. keeping everyone, making everyone feel comfortable. But I, I think these questions were going to every bank. Well, every bank was going to have, and they were press releases issued, the bank stable, good capital ratio. You know, everyone had the same messaging, you know, but you got to peel <laughs> it back and look what's going on. And 
hey, we had to play a lot of defense and there was other ways to preserve and, and reposition things. So people Well, and how it. much, how good did it feel to be able to tell the truth, man? I think about like all these other bankers. Like, I mean, if you're, if you know that you're kind of up shit's Creek and it's like, or you got to kind of like, cause it's like, it's like this chicken or the egg where like, if the deposits don't leave, you actually might not have a problem. It felt but good it, to tell the, the tell the truth. You know, we, you don't want to cast stones. Things can change quickly. So it was always, it was um, being fully transparent and just laying out the facts. You're exactly mm -hmm. right. But knowing that uh, it's, it's a small town and you want to be, we're always kind of watching our, our, our flank as well. So, you know, that was, I think what exacerbated things here even further would be kind of what you alluded to the meanwhile, those that had huge portfolios of permission, you know, primarily installment loans in the form of fixed rate real estate loans that started with a three or a four with the percentage that are fixed for five plus years, three, five, seven year fixed rate loans. And all of a sudden the cost of money is in excess of that. Well, or around that, that math doesn't work very long. So you were getting compounded issues with and then the other thing, I, I believe there were certain banks that did, that were more of the high growth real estate driven, maybe had less, maybe had more transactional deposit structure as well, where that was let, that was more likely to exit the bank, their banks. So they would may had some reduction in their, or flight of deposits out. Meanwhile, margin erosion because of the interest rate environment, that, that that that's a double whammy. So all of a sudden you're not making any money and your liquidity is really tight. But I want you to, that I want you to back, I want you to back into this. And so a couple, I want to, uh, cause I, I like where you're going with this. And just as a note too, we've got some questions from listeners to back to your earlier point. There are a lot of people that do really care. And I, I don't want to skip past that because I'd say kind of people like are almost in two camps. It's like, they just, they're trying to understand this stuff or people really care about this stuff. And we're going to get to some questions from listeners that we've got prepped, but I think you're getting to the kind of the major issue in the middle market banks of like the business model. But before I like, you know, as far as like these long-term loans at certain rates and as rates go up, let's do, a, let's try and do our best, Jeff, for people that aren't living this every day. Like what is actually going on with the bank balance sheets and their cash flow statements? And because some people might've heard of the inverted yield curve or they, maybe they care a lot about it, but this flipping it's like the whole world got like for middle market banks, the business model got flipped on its head where the cash flow was working and the balance sheet was good. But all of a sudden, Jerome Powell <laughs> and yeah. Yellen rack, rack up the rates and all of a sudden everything doesn't work. And people probably that aren't familiar with this all day are going like, how is that possible for a whole business model to get flipped on its head that fast? Well, it moved quick and it was historically speaking very fast. There's no doubt. So well, it's kind of to my, if you've got a certain amount of loans that you're accumulated, you're earning interest on a loan that starts with a four and your cost of money is roughly the same that, you know, there just isn't the margin, the net margin erosion within the banks was really an issue. So the performance became, and these things are focuses, Talk about your cost these are what the regulators like, focus on. You know? right. And I want I want to do a, like maybe step by step, so forgive me for maybe we're doing some baby steps here, but so cost of money. So, so your, your cost of money and capital was a what two or three and then it goes up or like explain so your may, cost you of know, money it, it had been virtually at zero for the longest time because rates were so low so what a bank is paying on their deposits you know, it'd be an accumulation of what they have in their various deposit accounts amongst their customers and other things and if they're borrowing and kind of how that particular funding portion of the balance sheet is set up compared mm -hmm. to what they're earning on so mm -hmm. 
for the longest time, rates prime was at three and a quarter and no one was earning anything on a savings account for how long? I mean, it right. never came up yeah. for yeah. a decade. Um, so those, so it was really every bank felt, Hey, their cost of money was virtually, it wasn't, that really wasn't the focus. It was, uh, earning, it was accumulating additional assets and having a margin that was appropriate at that time based on whatever the, you know, and those were very low rate loans. As a result, all of a sudden, major swift change, their margins are getting squeezed as a result. And the the regulators have things they focus on, one of which is the earnings of the bank mm -hmm. and the liquidity position. So you've got that. So this is really strictly from, you know, the bank's position. All of a sudden, the a particular bank may not be earning what they were used and to. And this is a ca cash flow perspective from the bank. Like an income. Yeah. Income. We'll get to the balance on sheet assets. Yep. Um, and then compounded with, if they had any deposit flight out, they were feeling they may have to borrow money to fund their loans at even higher rates. So it really snowballs and creates these yeah. bigger issues. Now, yeah. some of this is going to work out because the Fed, hey, if, if things turn and some of these things, if, if banks are going to have the ability to ride it out and it would ultimately over time. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Jeff. I want to briefly give you an overview of why I think it's worth going and checking out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit, or if you wanted to dive further into the online Intentional Growth Academy. As Jeff and I are talking about how banking works, how banks assess risk, it's really all boils down to how financials work and how to understand the predictable, sustainable future cash flows of a company. And that starts with understanding how financials work. In the Starter Kit, I have an actual case study where I break down the three financial statements so you can see using a case study how to organize your three financial statements, your income statement, tie it to your balance sheet, and more, most importantly, the visibility into that cash flow statement, how to tie that cash flow statement to your target normalized EBITDA so you can reverse engineer the financials and see your working capital and how much you're going to need and how much you're going to need to fund that working capital in order to hit your goals, how that impacts your distributions as an owner, and how that impacts your taxes, and how that impacts your timeline to get to the valuation that you want. Because if you understand, I truly believe you understand the financials like Jeff and I are talking about, you can sit in front of a bank, a private equity firm, or any potential buyer, and you can tell your story Instead of like I did using a PowerPoint or a whiteboard 10 years ago, you can tell the story and you can prove the story that you know what the heck you're talking about. So go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit. It's free. It's got a bunch of videos and the case study that I'm talking about. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation with Jeff. For most you know banks, it I want to comment on that because like I, it's like when I think about what, when March 2020 happened, Jeff, and like I'm watching the politicians and the people going, oh, small businesses will be fine over time. Yeah, and I'm you're going, right. Well, what in the hell? Like the Inc. 5000, the stats are on the Inc. 5000, like 80% of those people can't afford two payrolls. So over time, it's not going to be fine because there is right. no time. Right. <laughs> and so like, and that goes back to like whatever their models were of these banks, like your bank over time will be perfect. It's capitalism, right? But then all the, like all the other people that didn't have that time. Well, I think what you're going to see is, um, Hey, on a case by case. So it's the, the looming thing that you're reading about all the time is the commercial real estate market and what this all means. And you see different dates. And I was reading articles this week about, you know, there's, there's rate, there's a big slew of loans that are coming due within a certain period of time by the next, you know, 
And in a huge, like 80% of those loans are with the regional banks or with the small banks. So if those loans are coming, coming, if they're actually coming due, well, there's two things. One might think, okay, that would allow the bank to reset the pricing. So it would be more in line with their cost, the, what the cost is. However, adjusting that pricing is going to impact the cash flow for the borrower because all of a sudden their cost of money. So think I about know, these moving I parts know. here and how, and I, oh, I do too much. I do, I do not too much, have, you, you think about this and I don't have the answers and maybe we'll solve it yet. The, um, so therefore the, in theory, the value of that particular asset or that real estate is less because there's less cash flow getting generated because of the, so these things, well, let's 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 pull back because if it, I'll, I'll see if I can put the link in the show notes. Uh, Jeff, I was watching the sixty minutes. I think I might have sent you that one. I'm not sure, but the sixty minutes of the commercial real estate from like a couple weeks ago, and like I'm gonna say this because I like I was saying before we hit record is like I, I I struggle with how how to word this without sounding like an a hole. Honestly, is like this guy's on on TV and he's talking about his multi billion dollar real estate portfolio that has gone down in share value like 40%. Because like he had all of his cash flow models built on 95% occupancy. And so he borrowed billions and billions of dollars against a 90, like, hey dude, I can just tell you at the age of 37 that there's probably gonna be things that come up that might have that occupancy go down. And like, he's sitting there going, okay, so now I think the numbers, Jeff, were like, he needs $80 million for refinancing over the next like 12 months. And he can only borrow now 60. Right. Right. And because of his equity, the, the, the equity that went down. So it went from 80 to 60 yet. The 60 is going to cost him more than the 80 did. Yes. And he's got now half of his people instead of 95% occupancy, it's like 80. And you know what the guy said? And I just wanted to punch him in the face. He goes, this is one of the biggest societal problems ever. And I just wanted to go, dude, this is called capitalism. And I just was like, what societal problem is this for you? And I just the like societal problem would be addiction to debt at low, at low rates uh, and zero and, and easy money and free, you know, so that, that, that but I'm like, with like, you, I get you. And that, when that, so that's a multiply that by, so that was a big, that, those are that's, the magnitude of dollars that that guy's talking is huge, but it was a, you know, double, triple, quadruple whammy of things that are, that are working against them. So, you know, how does that all get resolved? I think it's. Cause the bank still has the loan, right? Cause like, so let's go well, back right. to your point, your, your point where like the bank has the loan in that situation. So the bank still needs to refinance the loan. And if he can't pay back the loan, the bank's balance sheet's in jeopardy. Or so like there's, there's kind of this chicken or I mean, like it's like you're they're they're in it together. Or right? they I can't mean, or or they're having an issue servicing the 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 loan itself because if the vacancy is higher or there's a mm -hmm. uh, compounded with a higher payment because interest rates are higher. So, you know, this all goes back to um you kind of gotta walk the you know, the bank operates under a diversified model on a conservative balance sheet and an ax, you know, a, a certain amount of liquidity. And we tell our clients, this is what we're telling our clients all the time. Not that there's a certain amount of a reasonable and manageable level of debt and an adequate level of mm -hmm. liquidity available and good information. I don't need to tell you, but it, 
forward looking to get out in front of an issue and running cash flows to project, you know, so um, I mean, it all comes back full for those that were promoting this um, mm -hmm. and the banks are as guilty, you know, as guilty as anyone, um, you know, enabling some of this and promoting this stuff. And then people are running, you know, Hey, you're flying too, too close. And it, it ultimately, if there is an issue in this case, three or four issues occurring at the same time, uh, it doesn't end well. If you're doing well, it all I, on leverage and high rates of leverage, assuming the rates are never going to go up. Assume, and that the cash flow is always going to be there. And that's so like always going like, to be so full. It's like the, tri yeah. the triple whammy. And yep. what's, um, so it's, yeah, it is a, I mean, again, that was just, and this is not dealt with to your problem, to your point. And this is where like everybody thinks like, Oh, like last year was when we had the banking crisis and the people keep hearing about this stuff. And I think what happens is, is there's a news flash clickbait, people look at it and then they forget about it. But like you and I who live in cash flow statements, I'm like, well, the problem is still 18 months. I mean, it's still there. Yeah. I mean, I it's think I do, I do worry about that. You know, I don't, and I don't have any insight. This isn't, this is only my personal, uh, if, you know, people ask what's going on in the economy all the time and I get tidbits from clients and it's really hard to assess as to mm -hmm. what is going on. And, you know, we have, we have, I think certain manufacturers, it's been softer. Some of the macro, you know, indexes would indicate that it has been slower. There's certain segments that in real estate, like mortgage banking has been softer, you know, uh, certain, certain industries have been okay. Others see, feel like they've slowed down. Transportation is slow. It's hard to get a gauge on the economy and you're flooded with information every day that it's day by it's day. You could come too. up with a different, you could come up with a different conclusion. I know. I mean, well, and, and, there's so much information to digest. It's really hard to. Um, and just because one industry is down doesn't mean that the other ones are. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, and I and I do believe too, because um, after uh, with Brian from ITR Economics coming on the show every 90 days, like, I mean, if the Fed is going to reduce rates, five, you know, four to six times this year, and even if it's a little bit, like it's going to prop up the economy for the next 12 to 18 months. So like there, and I think about like where, where I've learned the hard way, it's like, I just look at this and it's kind of like what Ray Dalio explains when he like had his lessons learned in the eighties is like, if the, if the fed comes in and bails out all the banks, it'll actually just be fine. And like the well, thing is, is like the, the economy could still sustain that if all of a sudden every bank that was at risk has a big, huge parachute of money landed there. And then all of a sudden, all the financial numbers are make sense again. You know what I said, though, Jeff, to someone over uh, over the holidays? I said, you know what I've, because I, when, when, when the bailout happened over the weekend, I said to my, I said to my buddies who own companies too, I said, if they bail these son of a guns out, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's like the death of capitalism. And like, literally it happened before Monday. And I was like, you know what I felt like just happened? I said, I felt like I've been playing soccer my whole life, which is what I played. And someone on the other team grabbed the ball with their hands, threw it into the net and said, two points, but yes. you can't do that. And I was just like, what the heck is this? Well, I mean, that'll be, so that will be interesting. I don't know if it'll, where I was going is, you know, on the economy, if there's one thing that I do get, is there, is there going to be additional issues with, with in the banking system? you know, system wide as a result of everything we've talked about, you know, like what's this black swan that's going to mm -hmm. derail things here. I don't know. Maybe they're going to be able to navigate all this and handle it. You know, you got, uh, you got, you got election, you got all these things that, that are uh, factors into, it. you got fed policy, you've got, 
you know, the well, obviously the I've, interest rate market. But if there's a banking thing, then that could be really the issue that really gets the that may spur on the Fed to move more quickly to lower rates more quickly mm -hmm. as a result. Well, I, yeah, and that, I, that is probably that would be the one thing I think that might trigger further because, you know, the, you, they would feel let's say they start cutting here maybe as soon as March, probably not, maybe probably by May. And if inflation begins to start perking up again, man, they would look even more foolish than they have previously. You know, they went in so early. But if there is a banking thing that drives it, that might be the way for them to cut harder. Well, because it's because yeah, it's going to be something that can be swallowed by the public is the problem. And like, and I think about like, and I want to move on to then some Q and A from the listeners because I think all this is like, and I don't want this to get lost. Is the point is we as privately held business owners and banks like yours who care about cash flow, we can navigate this stuff. And I, and I, and I, I lose it sometimes too, Jeff. We're like, I mean, the ITR, Brian and Allen's book is called prosperity in the age of decline. He's like, this is about prosperity for the people that give a shit, Ryan. And I was like, you're right. I just like, I just care about the system so much that I get like lost sometimes. But the reality is like, this is a good thing for people that do care and so, like, I want to get into some of the questions that we, we've got, yep. but I think, um, I just think it is fascinating, Jeff, because, like, you know, when we were talking about that, someone saying that the debt or the debt doesn't matter, I'm like, the U.S. government can't afford its debt right now, the debt, the, uh, the payments, we we just talked about commercial real estate, no one's talking about private equity because it's no, vis there's no visibility, I gotta imagine it's the same numbers as commercial real estate, Jeff, from what I've been doing for 10 years, and it's the same math equations and the same challenges, and then the like, and so like, there's there's these landmines going on. Yeah, but if yeah. we're aware of them, then we can navigate them, control what we can control. I guess that's isn't that a great lesson right there in life? Yeah, I, I know you like learning. To, I'm living by that, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're up, you know, you're at crack of dawn working out. You got a lot on your mind. I get it. So you gotta you gotta work through all those things as <laughs> you're burning off steam. <laughs> Uh, let's, uh, let, before we get into some of the, the questions from the listeners, um, I want to talk about a fascinating, uh, concept that I, I, I dropped in our notes, which is that, you know, I, I talk about the U S census bureau and how many privately held companies are out there. Um, the 6 million privately held companies, 20,000 of them are over a hundred million with, uh, 50, 56 million employees. And then there's 300,000 between 5 million and a hundred million. And then 5.6 million underneath 5 million in revenue. Yeah. And then we think about like this $10 trillion baby boomer wealth tsunami that the exit planning Institute and all these people are talking about, which I understand that they're trying to help people, but like I've been kind of, as I've been inside of cash flow statements and balance sheets, I'm going, I'm, am I missing something here? Cause like 5.6 million of them generally have enough cash flow for their lives Right. But if you look at the valuation and the transaction price and the ability for the cash flow to sustain a transaction, I, I, hear, I know what you're saying. I think there's there is a um, yeah, I was interested. Those statistics are really interesting that you shared. I think there is a huge percentage of those that big wealth transfer. Well, a huge chunk of that wealth transfer, supposed are lifestyle businesses They're with jobs. folks that that have have built that have lived a great life and have generated income for themselves and have added but they haven't and you're the guy that hey this is what you're to build a sustainable treat your business like a financial asset that you want to get to the next level and scale like the name that would be a great name for a bank and uh <laughs> um 
not everyone is wired. They're just not, they don't think that way. And, um, you know, I think. Because you have to investigate. There's one thing I've learned. It's, it's investing in systems and other people. And, and a lot of times there was a recent transaction with a client that just had a liquidity event a week or two ago. I'm looking back at it. And this was owned by one individual and it was sputtering along when we started working with them 15, I don't know, 12 years ago. They hired, the, and, and, you, and the owner, I think, was smart enough to know, I'm never going to get this thing where I want to go on my own. I need to bring in someone to run this thing. So mm-hmm. first and foremost, this guy was smart enough and had the lack Redemption. of ego to admit, yeah. I need someone here to help me get this thing where I want to go. And he got out of the way and hired a great individual that I happen to know from previous stuff. And we ended up working together and we kind of rode this thing. So my point is unusual for someone to have the lack of ego and the foresight and the ability, Hey, I'm going to just, I need, I'm not going to ever get to this 25, 50, whatever million dollar revenue on my own doing what I'm doing. I need to hire, I need to add it. I need to invest in systems. You know, you hear a lot about EOS in town here. That's always Mm -hmm. a big one. Um, Work with people like yourselves that can help, implement other controls on the financial side and get out and plan, actually plan your capital investments and and get out in front of working capital issues and um, manage your bank relationships and other things like that. So it's um, a lot of work. There is, it is. And I don't think everyone, and there's no, there's nothing wrong with the lifestyle business for those folks that are living a good, but, but they don't have they're not maximizing the value of that company. Well, and Jeff, I'll, I, I want to add a couple of things to that because I love how you worded that. We're like, that's what, there's two po- two parts is like, I always say too, like, it's okay to not want to do that. But what I want and like kind of my whole thought and intentional is get what you expect and right. reduce the gap between your expectations and reality because the bigger the gap, the more resentment and unhappiness there is. Because what happens is like, and I'll, I'll roll through this is like, if someone's making 200 grand, Let's say they're making 200 grand salary distributions, whatever it is. And then someone and like, this is where like, we have to have the financial lens of this because otherwise people can't get to that other side or make a choice. If someone says to me or you and says, you know what? I don't want to do those things, but what they can then do is save for retirement. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, like instead of expecting your company to yeah. randomly be worth $5 million on its own, that just so happens to be the exact amount of money that you need to retire. But realistically, it's not. So there's that gap in expectations. And like I say to someone, like if you don't want that level of work, then just you have to adjust your expectations and what you do. But if you do want that level of work, then the, the, the challenge also, Jeff, that I see is like in people don't have the visibility to make that choice themselves, which is the biggest shame I think for business owners. Cause like I'm confident that people have the data, they can make their own decision. It's like, well, I want this or that. But like, I think the problem is, is like to go from the 200 grand and I see so many people in the EOS meetings do it. It's like, they go in there, hire an implementer, you know, seven grand a day. They go in there for two days and they make up all these things that they want to do next year. No idea how much they cost. No idea how much they're going to impact their distributions. No idea how they're going to impact their valuation. Just making shit up. And I'm going, <laughs> so like, the problem is, is like, I see that to go from that smaller business to scale, like with, with what you're talking about is you might have to reduce your annual income. Which people don't like, like that's a, right. a very intentional choice to say, like, Jeff, if you can't afford less than 20 grand a month in income, like this is a non-option to do these investments. Or you have to like borrow money from a bank that gets it. 
Or are they going to surround themselves with people that are willing to challenge them? And not everyone's going to listen. I mean, I understand that, but I think uh, they need folks like yourselves or, or uh, other fractional or consultants or get in a peer group or do something where they're going to get challenged. And they may not, they may not take the advice. They may not do it, but you know, those that can, you know, that's a character profile that we often associate with a good client of ours as CEOs that are or business owners that are in a peer group because they don't know it all. They like to learn. They like outside yep. influence. And those are the ones that understand what their limitations are and are willing to maybe make some of these adjustments for the long run. And they're going to ultimately maximize their value and really get the payday good at point. the end. But it's, again, not everyone sees it that way. There's no harm in that, but um, if if you really feel like you're building something or you want to build something, this is your number one financial asset and you want to get it worth X, well, there's there's steps to do that and there's important kind of the pillars of your advisors and influencers that you need around you uh, to help you challenge you being Mr. and Mrs. Business Owner to get to that step. Yeah, it's in, in the, and I think if... In- as we get into the Q and A now, and then I'll let you uh, run the show. Is like, is I I truly do believe Jeff that like, and I'm curious what you th- what you think about this this thought concept, and then we can get into the Q and A. Is like, I do believe Jeff. I really do believe is that if we, as the advisor community or other entrepreneurs, help each other shift our goal from revenue and net income to a target equity valuation at a point in time. So if you say you want to go from X normalized EBITDA to Y, and then what? So what's my EBITDA got to be in 2030? What's my multiple got to be? And what's my debt? That equity valuation brings those three KPIs into clear view instead of just some blind K1 that they're thinking about. And I think then it aligns then how they're going to use scale bank, how you're going to fund your working capital to get there, how it impacts their distributions. I just think shifting the goal Helps or or, right or just or only solely focusing on the top line and not you know it's so do you want to be the biggest or you want to be the best you know what I mean I mean that's kind of mm-hmm. how the banks operate you want to be the best what's your be definition the best of best well the best performer the best you know you want to make cash flow you, well yeah <laughs> and do you want to you want to double your revenue and have all these other complications that go along with that and make the same amount of money no. Well, and I, I always say, Jeff, like my dad and I, when we met you, 21 million in revenue, lost 950,000 bucks. Like who cares? 115 employees, lots of stuff. If we would have sold the business, we would have owed the bank two million right. some dollars. Right. Like, that is not the call of winning. And my, no, like, it's that wouldn't have worked so... out so well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay. Um, we can kind of do some rapid fire behind these if yep. you want. Um, but uh, so how do banks evaluate current clients uh, for risk, what steps do they take and how do other banks handle those same issues? Current clients, um, for current clients, I would say, um, at least how we operate, we know who we're working with and we stay really close to them. And, uh, and we like a lot of information and it isn't to burden the client and this should be stuff that they're producing themselves anyway, but it's another set of eyes on it and for us to be responsive and get out in front of an issue or if they have an opportunity and they need to do something we're not getting re-educated and getting got up to speed so it's know who you're doing business with stay close and then have an understanding know the business get to know mm-hmm. the company and the industry the best you can we're never going to know it as well as the owner and then it's uh you know hey there's a certain rhythm of you know actual review of credit and so forth but i think if you're proactive 
and you're staying close, you can get out in front of maybe a particular issue or an opportunity versus just the reactive, hey, give me a statement once a year and don't talk to me in the meantime, and then we can talk then. Sometimes that's too late or there may already be an issue. So I think it's proactively staying close would be the best way to do that. And that can mean how different you, things for everybody. How do you, the bank, assess the risk of a new client? New client, it would be, hey, it's kind of back to the old... Uh, you know, the five C's of crazy, what, what's the collateral, the cash flow, the conditions in the market. We want to work with people that do a business a certain way. So that character in the assessment of the management is really as important as anything. And I've heard that from, there was another credit guy here at the bank who had worked at a previous bank and they had a scorecard as to how they analyze folks. One of the criteria that they really leaned heavily on was the owner's grasp of the company's balance sheet which I thought was really interesting and, interesting. Uh, and not hey, a lot of owners don't really think they it's, you can see that when the, the owner likes oftentimes the entrepreneur, it's the P and L the bank starts with the balance sheet and it's different. Um, and uh, you know, well, so I really would say, interesting. yeah, I like that. Cause like uh, my old partner, you always just say, if you, if the balance sheet is accurate, and you have two balance sheets over two periods of time, and there's the cash flow statement, and you're there gonna you go. have it's gonna it's gonna be correct. You know the P and L might be muddied up, but you're gonna have two yeah. two, two uh, pictures of the truth. <laughs> Banks always like the balance sheet. That'd be a tidbit to the users when you're providing financial statements to your bank. Have the balance sheet on page one. Hey, I like that. <laughs> what factors are most important in approving a deal? Um, history in the business, successful track record, personal balance sheet. I think all of the above. I think the financial, the accuracy of good and timely financial information is really important to us. So we got to have a comfort level in the information. And, uh, you know, I think a realistic approach to, you know, what the needs are and what the expectations are. But the um, all of that does come into play. You know, we, there, there may be ways to mitigate a certain shortfall with, hey, maybe it could be augmented with uh, support from the individual's balance sheet. You know, or you could utilize some other loan program or utilize the SBA or something like that to help with a particular softness in a deal. But none of which can happen if your information doesn't make sense and doesn't. So that's a constant battle. And we have, you know, it'd be amazing. There's sophisticated business people that uh, don't appreciate the value of accurate, timely financial information or well, utilizing an outside professional to help them provide that. Well, Jeff, I'll, I'll add to that because I one of my... You probably uh, know a little something about this, yeah. Uh, well, on both sides of it, because I was actually <laughs> going to talk about my crappy situation before now. Like, I mean, this is why I'm so you know, timely, accurate, useful financials. And, and I I learned this the hard way because I after interviewing 17 banks, and I, I can't even imagine what you and all these <laughs> bankers thought. We'd sit down and like, okay, well, we're in a shitstorm. We need more money. And we yeah. got a really good business. And then I'd go up and I would have amazing PowerPoints. I'd bubble chart our entities and where our growth is. And people would be like, that is an amazing story, Ryan. And then they'd say, prove it. And I'm like, well, I just did. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Like, and like, so now I just say like, you get like, there's that story. And then there's the the, the character, the five C's that you talk about. But then the, the numbers and the cash flow statement, the balance sheet prove the story. And that is the that is the proof. And I and I always say like it's such a shame because you can't you you can't prove your story if you don't have that data. So like it's not just an administration task. It's literally the nail in the coffin to get what you want. It's a tool. It's got to be a tool, not a yep, not a task. Yep. One another question is I would love to know how 
who owns the bank matters. It affects us significantly since the bank has a singular owner who likes real estate versus operating companies due to collateral. Yeah, that would be um, well. Hey, every, every each model has its own um, merits. I would think there have been if there's a family that owns a bank, like a a, a family with no plan for succession other than to sell it. A you know. Mm -hmm. That can oftentimes be easily identified. So, um, or an individual. What we saw when there were a bunch of banks popping up in the early 2000s, it was a group of individuals that invested in banks and they put in 50, 100 grand, whatever. And it was a pool of individuals. Well, that goal was to grow the bank and to sell it. I mean, that mm -hmm. was the end because they wanted some return on their investment in the form of liquidity. So, it is important to have an understanding as to the long term. A, anything can happen with. Mm -hmm. They never say never and any bank could, you know, you never know, but um, to have an understanding of the ownership and the, the, the long-term plan, I think is, uh, is a, that's a fair question to ask. Well, and I think if I were to just to comment on that too, is the fact that someone had that question and knew. Well, they know the question. answer. Well, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> like, <laughs> ask, I think the answer is ask the question, right? Yes. <laughs> um, what steps can entrepreneurs and business owners take to limit their personal guarantees? And then um, in, quote, in quotes, he might not answer that one. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> um, most of them, most of our deals, the the standard in the industry is if it's closely held or uh, privately held company, that there's often a guarantee from the owner or owners. Um, there are ways to work around that. We've got a lot of uh, ESOP clients at the bank. I know you know ESOPs well. Mm -hmm. um, so employee owned where there isn't a majority owner, a lot of those or those deals don't have guarantors. We've been able to structure deals around that with the trade-off would be, at least in our case, from a simplicity of the documentation and potentially the financial monitoring or covenants around a deal. Oh, that's um, fair. If there's yeah. a guarantor, sometimes we can keep it more on the simple side versus if there's more of a covenant driven deal without guarantors sometimes that can be a little bit more complicated with more complex oh, loan yeah. agreements and legal documents and, co and covenants around it versus and a lot of our clients like it easy they want to be a guarantee security agreement I'm, i understand what this means uh, or you could have a limited guarantee which sometimes can take some of the edge off but well, you know, there's sense, a trade-off from I, simplicity yeah. to the to, to complexity in that regard well, that makes a ton of sense because um, when people do ESAPs, a lot of times the personal guarantees are eliminated. But if right. you think about why that is, is exactly what you just said is in order for someone to do the transaction to do an ESAP, they actually have to get their stuff together, get the data to write together so everybody believes the story and therefore eliminate. So it's really just Sound a Sound management team and you know, all those things factor into it. So it's – I mean there's ways to work around that, but most of our no, – the industry standard is still the, the – most cases there's there is a guarantee uh the next two i think we kind of covered which is how to how does someone evaluate a bank i think we did a pretty decent job on that one and then uh when a few fail uh, a few failed banks i called several then they said that they had safe investments i don't know what this means i think we kind of covered some of yeah, that. yeah there, there are those tools um back to the esops again too some of those are really board driven or trustee driven that they wanted to make sure they did not have any exposure in or as little as possible in excess of the fdic coverage mm -hmm. um and others that just 
we're motivated to to restructure some things. There are ways where you could enter into agreements to have overnight the what's the vernacular ICA insured cash sweep, they call that. Basically a bank would enter into a program uh, and there'd be a back end that would administer all of this, where there would be each night overnight, uh there's there's kind of tranches of a pool of deposit that would go to other banks to help sh uh, share that risk. Sure. So right. we would only have technically we are li that the limit would not be an in an impacted by the uh, primary bank because it was getting shared overnight. And then the reciprocating bank would receive, sh you know, deposits from the other bank. So we wouldn't lose deposits as an organization and yeah, the customer would feel like it's all with the same bank, but behind the scenes, these things were getting shared uh, huh, amongst cool. other banks. The trade-off sometimes can be a lower, slightly lower yield for that benefit, but that is a tool. Uh, and we had to dust off those options here over the last year, certainly when, when these issues have, have come up. There's a bit of a trade-off from the costs and there's some complexity, but really it's all behind the scenes and it really from the from the client's perspective, it doesn't really necessarily, it doesn't change anything. Better question. I think to add, I like how, I like, I mean, asking that question, how they do that versus like, I think the blanket answer over the last 12 months is split all your money over 250 to a, between a bunch of different banks. And I'm like, that just sounds administratively like, I mean, there's a certain level of exposure. Well, I think, yeah, you hey, we're, but... we had some heart to heart. Hey, I'll show you my balance. You know, Hey, we're, we're in this together and uh, you're just going to take it and, there were some difficult discussions where we had to kind of make sure folks understood our position that we're in the, Hey, we're, uh, we're working together for the long run and for you to start pulling out, everything is going to be in it. You know, that, <clears throat> that is to every, that isn't in everyone's best benefit. And how can we structure something where everyone feels as though it's secure and mm -hmm. the bank still is sound and has the ability to operate going forward and they can kind of connect the dots. Okay. Hey, I'm in this together with you. And this is a partnership of, of, of a certain respect. Uh, some people, la you know, Hey, there's people that did that or they open up personal accounts and joint accounts and start divvying it up a little bit of brain damage to do all that. Know your bank, know who you're working with. I mean that and understand what's going on and get and ask these tough questions. <clears throat> the other thing I would add just, and I don't know if it was on the, the Q and a, but the, the bank, the other thing I would encourage business owners, make sure your bank is taking fraud seriously. Oh, yeah. And You're about this. that yeah. would be whether it's products that the bank can offer to mitigate risk for just your day-to-day -day banking, or they have resources or other ideas or can point you in the right direction to have a policy where you're running your day-to-day -day banking as efficiently but as securely as possible. And, well, I mean, and like, we can, let's talk about a couple of stories, Jeff, because yeah. like, cause I think people hear the word fraud or cybersecurity and their eyes glaze over now. But like I had recently I had said to you, I had talked to two different people. One were like they had some request for a transfer and they transferred 250 grand. This is not one yep. of our clients, but like this was a friend of mine. And like the bank's like, well, that we the bank approved it. And yeah. he was like, I didn't do that. Happen, that happens all the time where you would get an email. That'd be that'd be the social engineering attempt where you'd get an email from the president who inevitably is traveling or out of town that would email the CFO. Hey, I'm buying this, this, that, or the other. Can you wire the following? And it would sound like it's them, but it isn't them. And then they would initiate yeah. a wire and it would be approved and the bank would go through their steps and it would. So we've really, um, so that is a big one. The attempted wire fraud, usually through email. Um, we've got the benefit. We know you don't want things to grind to a halt, but if anyone ever emails me about a wire, 
I'm calling them. I got to hear their voice and I got to understand what's going on. And I'm asking them, did you get, where'd you get this from? Are you comfortable? Do you want me to call whoever sent you this information? So there's a vigilance required from just the human element is a number one to stop stuff like that. Yeah. But that stuff happens all the time, but these attempts. So before I get into the stories, there are tools that the bank can implement. Positive pay is a big one on the check side, where if a check hit that wasn't part of a file that you uploaded to the bank, that it would be an exception. You'd have to approve or dis disallow that item to go through. There's filters for ACHs that only allow certain accounts to debit your account. You can have limits mm -hmm. on your ACHs, mm -hmm. dual approvals, other uh, mm -hmm. layers of approval and, and segregation of duties is, is as big as anything. And, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of one-on-one, but yeah, we would have new account kind of getting up and running, had them onboarded. They were hiring a new CFO. Then we get an email from the controller. Hey, we got our new CFO hired. Uh, here's his ID um, and his email. We want him to have full access to everything. And, uh, oh, my and oh, by the way, we just changed our web domain. So the ink at the end of our email addresses is no more. It's just blank, blank, blank dot com. Uh, and that's part of a change we're working on. Uh, can you get us this paperwork? And we're like, we got an idea. I mean, it looks legit. It was the right, it, right. it came from the client, you know, purportedly it was someone in yep. their email. You get an ID from somebody with a social security and it to add them as a user and a signer on the accounts. But you kind of, Hey, that should be recognized. Make a phone call. Hey, what's going on? Oh, that wasn't me. You know, I mean, so mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. as elaborate as that, but they would still take the steps of creating a, a new individual with a social security and a, an ID Isn't and everything that else. Wild. And then the last one here, first day of the year, business day of the year, January 2nd, have a big loan that we're getting ready to fund. And the proceeds are really going to a, a private party um, who we had been in touch with to confirm the receipt of the information. The Friday before the new year, uh, so whatever the you know, January 30th yeah. or whatever yeah, that was, yeah. our client sends over an email and says, Hey, by the way, um, I talked to so-and-so and, uh, there's a new account for the proceeds. Here's the email. It's on a letterhead from a bank. It's got a signature from some officer. It looks in it. it. And, uh, you know, we're like, eh, we better call the seller here just to make sure this sure enough, the seller's email had been compromised, had been watching all of this correspondence going on and on and on and forwarded the email to the client who probably didn't really pay any attention to it and fired it off to us. Now, had we had been asleep at the wheel or I'm out of the office or no one's around and you oh, weren't you're moving a million miles an hour, you might just forward that thing on and not take two looks at it. But we had the guard up. We had some folks that took a further look, made the phone call, discovered it, it $1.9 million. I mean, that would have been, I wouldn't be Done. on with you today had that gone out. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so Again, long story short, the the uh, the uh, the personal knowing who you work with, understand that the bank takes this seriously and that they know you and have resources where they can actually get a hold of somebody and make a decision. I mean, that's important. So you can't have business grind to a halt. But you got to know who you're working with because the human element is what stops. You know, it's so fascinating, and I think you just said the most important part, probably to sum up this whole conversation, in which here we are. AI is going to be on a rampage now going forward. And like we, all these challenges and like everything comes down to the human to human touch. Well, and you like, saw the, our billboards for the new bank name. It was the human bank. You know, it was, it was a spin. It was a AI counter AI theme. 
human banking, the human touch. That's exactly right. Where we can be more human than maybe the competition and provide uh, that close. Because like at the end of the day, like when I think about money and the reason I like the the concept of money so much and capital and all this stuff, Jeff, is because I love psychology so much and the way that human beings exchange goods and services and trust is through money. And so like, at the end of the day, it is psychology and we're exchanging trust and assets are just, we're just exchanging trust and you're the brokers of trust. I mean, isn't that what you are? Right. And like, right. and to eliminate the human part of that, it's insane. Yeah. And so like knowing the business, knowing the people, knowing all that stuff, it becomes exponentially, it. exponentially more important. Otherwise, like, you know, keep, hold on. <laughs> yep. No, that's well said. I, I, it's as important as ever, for sure, you know, and uh, hey, we're all busy, we're all running around, we got a zillion email, you know, and uh, it's, that has really been important to us to know who we're working with and understand the business. And then again, $1.9 million, that would have been a devastating uh, transaction had we yeah. had we not had people that were paying attention that knew what, that had a firm understanding of uh, what was going on. So yeah. Jeff, this has been an absolute blast, man. I'm so pumped that we finally got to do this. Um, where can people find you? Yeah, I, well, the website of the bank is, uh, it's a .bank domains. It's scale.bank, and there's some reasons for that. So that's another thing that's uh, in the industry. The dot, It's advantageous for a bank to have a .bank domain from security purposes. So if anyone ever got an email from me that said .com, it'd be a spoof, you know, or from the bank. So it's scale.bank. And then LinkedIn, I don't do a lot of other socials, so I'm pretty boring. You know, I'm not, I don't know. You were talking about this young guy earlier. That ain't me. I'm, I've just got LinkedIn in the, in the, in the website. Well, I've got, I've, and then it's, I, uh, I share your, I share, I share your feelings on that yeah, stuff too. We'll the get the email on there, but, it, uh, uh, the, the, the website of the bank and then the LinkedIn and, you know, I've got a goal, you know, so I know you did an episode, you've done nearly 400 plus of these things. Yeah. You'll I'm be not, damn near, you'll be close. You'll still be in the 300. I got it. one goal here. So John Thielen, your buddy, JT, yeah. who was a yeah. couple hundred ago, he was telling me he was one of the most listened to, uh, of your podcasts. And, uh, I don't think I can beat him, but I want to get like half of what he, <laughs> I well, I wanna, so to... let's make sure JT <laughs> is on look out here we're coming for well, we got to get this on your newsletter and you it guys will be. Get, oh we're gonna blast it and, not, uh, not your four linkedin connections but like <laughs> yes exactly yeah and i i got i want i'm coming for jt on this one we're gonna get that's him. awesome and then i i will uh data data is the ultimate decision maker on that one there you go there you go jeff, well we'll try to manipulate awesome, it the best we can <laughs> awesome appreciate it jeff thanks ryan this is a blast take care Thanks for listening into that conversation. I hope you found the time valuable. If you enjoyed the conversation, please leave the show a review on your podcast player. We're constantly trying to up those reviews. It helps a lot with the visibility. And if you didn't catch the commercial in the middle of that episode, there's two different ways that we can help you. One is if you want that kind of clarity, we have a coaching program that is based on the five intentional growth principles and uses the material to help you get that kind of clarity on your target equity valuation and income that you need on the way towards that valuation. What 
what you want from the business long term and why, and then how to get aligned with your leadership and your partners so that way everybody's working in the right direction to get you what you want. And the second way is if you want to jump right into the data and you want to actually build out your financial roadmap with your three statements and tie your financials and your operational data to that target equity valuation, my team offers a complimentary financial assessment. Either way, all you have to do is go use the link in the show notes below, schedule a discovery call with me. We can walk through your situation, figure out if there's a fit or not. And if not, I can point you in the right direction. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week.